Supporting the military is something that's always very important to me. People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I said, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? I spent two years in the service, and I was proud to be part of it. I wore that uniform with a pride and dignity, just like I wore the Dodger uniform with great character and love. The greatest name in the history of the Cleveland Indians franchise, Mr. Bob Feller. Hello, and welcome back, listeners of the American Valor Podcast, where we are speaking with individuals about service to others, as represented by Bob Feller. On this episode of the American Valor Podcast, we welcome another alumni of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Journalism, and Ms. Lindsay Barra. Similar to our previous guest and author, Ann Keen, Lindsay Barra has a strong family connection to baseball and World War II, as her grandfather, Yogi Barra, is one of the 37 National Baseball Hall of Famers who served in the United States military during World War II. One of the greatest catchers of all time, Mr. Barra won a record 10 World Series rings in his 17-year career with the New York Yankees. Mr. Barra was the inaugural Bob Feller Active Valor Award Hall of Fame awardee in 2013. Lindsay Barra received her undergraduate degree in journalism from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill where she played varsity softball and men's club ice hockey. From 1999 through 2012, she was a senior writer for ESPN Magazine, covering primarily ice hockey, tennis, baseball, and the Olympics. At MLB.com from January 2013 through January of 2018, she established herself as an authority on baseball fitness and injuries, and she appeared frequently on MLB Network to discuss her stories. Lindsay is the oldest grandchild of Yogi and Carmen Barra, and is currently a freelance sports journalist and a board member at the Yogi Bear Museum and Learning Center in Little Falls, New Jersey. Welcome to the American Valor Podcast, Lindsay. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Please tell us about yourself and your start in sports journalism. Oh, goodness. That's a, that's a big way to start. First of all, thank <laughs> you uh, for having me as well. My start in sports journalism, it wasn't my idea. I always do this. I give full credit to my mother. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I took AP English in, in uh, high school, and I was really good at, at writing, and I always did well on like the essay portions of tests. So my mom just said to me, you're a good writer, and you like sports, so why don't you be a sports writer? And for lack of a better idea, that was what I did. I went to University of North Carolina, which happened to be the number one or two journalism school in the country at the time. They always went back and forth with Mizzou and, and Syracuse, so I don't know who was in the lead at the time. But I ended up in a great place to go to journalism school. But that was way back in, in the Stone Ages in 1996 when I started at UNC. And sports journalism actually wasn't even a program at the journalism school at UNC yet. That didn't happen until two years after I graduated. And a lot of the professors didn't even think of sports as a serious career. So for all of our projects and stuff in school, we had to do um, pretty strong straight up news um, and features and stuff like that, but not not a lot of sports. Um, and then right after college, I kind of fell on a job at ESPN Magazine. A friend of my grandparents heard that the guy who moved in down the street from him was an editor at ESPN the magazine. He put my resume in his mailbox and they called me for a fact-checking job. And I started at ESPN uh, right there at 21, right when I had just graduated from college, started fact-checking. The woman who was in the hockey department at the time left 
And I had been there for a few months and had played hockey my whole life and had already befriended the hockey editor. And he said, well, we don't have to look for anyone else. Let's just hire her. And, and that was it. So along with being a sports reporter, you also do a lot of work with the Yogi Berra Museum. Can you give us a little bit of insight as to what you do with the museum? Sure. The museum opened in uh, 1999 or 98. We just had a 20-year anniversary. Um, I was still in college at the time, and a few years after I graduated, I became a board member at the museum um, because they wanted a family representative on the board. Um, so I've been a board member for a long time. The museum is on the campus of Montclair State University in Little Falls. New Jersey. It has a lot of really cool stuff in it, like my grandfather's MVP plaques and all 27 Yankee World Series rings and things that baseball fans really, really like to see. But it's the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center, and we take the Learning Center side of it very seriously. We do a lot of character education programs for kids based on my grandfather's values. We teach them about humility and respect and professionalism and, and treating people the way you want to be treated. We, we try to pass on his values to the next generation. And Along with each of our temporary exhibits, the current one we have right now is commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues. We do educational programming that goes along with it, and school groups come in for those as well. We teach uh, STEM education uh, and math through baseball statistics. Uh, there's a lot of really great stuff uh, going on at the museum, and it, it's it's really fun to be there and, and see the kids learn stuff about a past era of baseball, but also to make it relevant to the new generations in ways that they understand with technology and, and, and STEM and things like that. Yogi Berra was an American hero, serving in the military during World War II and later becoming one of the greatest catchers in baseball history. What are some of the characteristics you learned from Yogi and Carmen? Oh, goodness. So, yeah, people, a lot, it's funny to me how many baseball fans don't actually know about my grandfather's military service. And maybe it's just that people of that generation just all served and they don't really think of it as anything out of the ordinary, or maybe they just don't think of it because World War II is so far removed. But, um, Grandpa's family was Italian immigrants. They lived on the hill in St. Louis, and he actually enlisted in the Navy before he had a chance to be drafted because he felt it was his duty to serve his adopted country, and he ended up, ends up on a, a LCSS off of Omaha Beach during D-Day. Uh, he didn't talk about it much. It was just something that, that he did. Like I said, he felt it was his duty to do it, and he was as humble about that as he was about everything that he achieved in, in baseball, three world, um, three MVP plaques, uh, 10 World Series championships, 18 All-Star games. I mean, he, he was, I think, the best catcher ever. And you didn't hear him talk much about that either. He didn't talk about himself a lot. He talked about the things he did with his buddies and, you know, being a good teammate. And I think that's really what I took away from my grandparents, that no matter how good you were at something. It didn't mean that you were better than anyone else, that there, it was important to be humble, that my grandparents, my grandfather would, would treat the dry cleaner or the waiter at the restaurant the same way he would treat his granddaughter or the president of the United States. No one was every different. He, he was good to everyone and treated everyone with that same level of respect. I heard so many stories from people about how they had a conversation one time with grandpa 30 years ago, and it left a lasting impression on them, made them feel like the most important person in the room at the time and he had that ability to do that for people they, they really were both just very special people you mentioned that many people don't know about his military service did he ever share stories with you about that or the importance of his service to him he he didn't talk about it a lot at all as i was growing up and my dad tells me the same thing that he didn't talk about it as my father and my uncles were growing up i never really heard him speak about it until after um 
the first time was when Saving Ryan came out and he saw that movie and he started to talk a little bit about what it had been like for him. But for me, uh, we watched the first episode of Band of Brothers on HBO when it came out. My dad, my grandfather and I, and as the credits started to roll, he started to, to just sort of talk about being on that boat off of Omaha Beach because that was what that first uh, episode had been about. And I had never heard him say anything and I started to ask him a question and my dad across the room put his fingers over his lips and shushed me because he knew if I interrupted grandpa it would probably you know bring him out of this mental place that he had gone to and he would stop talking about it and my dad wanted to hear him talk because he hadn't talked about it much um really when people asked him about it in interviews he would say something you know kind of glib and just be like oh the sky was lit up like at the fourth of july now we all know you know war is not like fireworks it's a lot more stressful than that but that was just kind of the way that he made it user-friendly for for people and he just talked about the service in 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 the way that it was something that he felt like he needed to do you know, he would make a joke and say, I was in the Navy, but I never learned how to swim. It's okay because they taught me to make a life jacket out of my pants. But he, he, he really would just kind of, he would talk about it in a, in, a, in a joking way. And I think that a lot of veterans, guys of his age did that because it was kind of, a, it was a way that they made those memories bearable because, you know, they were obviously pretty traumatic for a lot of people. So your grandfather was well known for uh, his humorous expressions. Do you have any favorite yogiisms? Um, I do have some favorite yogiisms. I think the most popular ones are nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. It ain't over till it's over. But my favorites tend to be the more existential ones. If the world were perfect, it wouldn't be. Um, or the future ain't what it used to be. I like those. But I think that they all have... Um, you know, the thing about grandpa was that the way he saw the world was not the way everyone else saw the world. He was just so black and white, no shades of gray, and he called it like he saw it. And when you listen to those yogiisms, they all have some bit of truth in them. They make a lot of sense. If you knew a restaurant was going to be jam-packed, would you go there and wait for three hours to eat? No, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. When you look at the fork, uh, it, uh, the actual fork in the road, when he says, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. He was giving directions to uh, his house and the road up to his road splits left and right, but both sides of the fork go to the road that he lives on. So it didn't matter which side you take. You take the fork, you make a left, you end up at the house. Um, so it was perfectly logical in, in his mind. He just, you know, he, he was the type of person that if you had a problem and you told it to him, he would very directly and very quickly tell you what you needed to do about this problem. And you would feel like an idiot for not seeing it because the answer was so simple. And he always gave you the right thing to do. It was, you know, almost certainly not the easiest way through the problem, but it was always the right thing to do. And you're like, oh, shoot, this, he's totally right. This is what I have to do. But it was just it was just his unique way of, of looking at the world. There's a funny one that I like to tell people because it's a personal one. I, when I was working at ESPN magazine, I did a, a story on a tennis player and I came home. My grandmother uh, used to dog ear all my stories in the magazine so my grandfather could find them quickly. And I walked into the house one night and he was reading this story about the tennis player and he, he's pointing at it as I walk in and he goes, this kid, this kid is good looking. You should date him. And I said, I can't date him, grandpa. He dates a swimsuit model. And he, without missing a beat, just looked at me and said, well, you've got swimsuits because in his mind, there was no difference between his granddaughter in her swimsuit and a swimsuit model in a swimsuit because he just... Like I said, no shades of gray. He was very funny that way. 
when you were growing up playing softball and your career progressed, did he have any input into your game or was he just a supporting grandfather? Or was he critiquing your swing and how you were playing? When I was a kid playing softball, grandpa, if I asked him a direct question about a swing or what to do in a situation, he would certainly answer it. And then we would get into a conversation about, you know, what should have happened. And it would be, it would become a a discussion. I had a propensity to chase high outside fastballs and my coaches were always all over me um, about swinging at bad pitches. Grandpa was known for being a bad ball hitter. And he said, look, it's, if it looks good to you, you're going to swing at it. You just have to learn to put the bat on it, shorten your swing and go the other way with that ball. So he he was, he was helpful and would, it would help me work with what were my strengths and, and uh, weaknesses. But what I think I learned the most from him from sports in general is that he he was very um matter of fact and pragmatic about sports if you lost it was because you didn't play well enough to win and if you come home and complain about it and sulk and gripe you're wasting time you better figure out what you did wrong you got to forget about it put it behind you so you can come back the next day and and do better you can't win tomorrow if you're still thinking about yesterday and you know, he would make me put things out of my mind quickly, figure out what I had done wrong, and then and then look forward to how I could be better the next day. And uh, I, I, it was always, always so funny to me when, when um, you know, Yankee fans, and this is not even people who were playing, they'd be so upset about a Yankees loss the next day. And Grandpa didn't quite get why people were so upset. And he would say silly things like, Derek Jeter doesn't care if you don't do well in your job. But he just he just didn't understand why people brought it home with them. And, and as a kid, it was definitely very helpful helpful to, to learn how to how to you know learn from your mistakes and then put them behind you have you seen parallels between those lessons that yogi taught you and have you seen those come up in your career in sports um i mean i think as far as putting your failures behind you certain people are really really good at that and certain people are not i mean i've seen athletes that that take losing so personally and it wasn't that losing didn't bother grandpa it was that it bothered him so much that he didn't want it to happen again and and he and he was able to kind of disconnect and 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 move on but a lot of people it's not that easy because it just it, it you know it hurts them um it, it, we talk about it all the time now, my, my, my dad, my brothers and I, about how many strikeouts there are in, in baseball. And that that's one thing that I never understand. You know, a strikeout back when my grandfather played was, was the ultimate failure. You didn't do anything to help your team. And now they're striking out three times a game. And they have to figure out a way, either they don't care that they struck out, which I don't think is possible because every athlete is out there trying to do their best, but they then they also have to figure out how to put that failure behind them and go out and hit again two innings later. So so they're obviously doing something something right, but it's I think it's different, very different for, for every athlete. And it's different for a baseball player or a tennis player that gets out there by themselves at the plate than it is for like a hockey player or a basketball player who's out there with five people supporting them. I think the mindsets are a little bit different, but but it is interesting the way people deal with it across sports. Yeah, in sports, the game of baseball has changed a lot since, you know, your grandfather played. Now they're hitting home runs at an alarming rate and everyone's worrying about launch angles and pulling the ball. Because you have all the shifts. We had Johnny Bench on. And he used to say he, he's pretty upset that people can't hit the other way and the people just yeah. ground in the shifts. Were there any things like that that you saw growing up that, you know, your grandfather didn't like? Or even things you as a reporter for MLB.com and ESPN, things that you see that you don't like? 
I mean, I'm, I am my grandfather's granddaughter and a lot of the things that he didn't like are the things that I don't like. He, um, did not like the crazy amount of strikeouts. He didn't like people swinging so hard all the time because they only wanted to hit home runs. He, he much preferred people to hit for contact. And if you do that, a lot of times the ball's going to go anyway, like Johnny bench. He didn't understand why people couldn't hit the other way, uh, with the shift. Anytime anybody popped up a bunt, he didn't understand why nobody knew how to bunt anymore. Why the fundamentals of the game had kind of gone away. Um, when you see a, a catcher and Gary Sanchez does this all the time, instead of when a ball is going down in the dirt, instead of turning the glove over to get the ball, they're, they're stabbing at it overhand and the ball rolls back to the backstop. That's the first thing you teach a young catcher as a kid, to turn the glove over and, and block the ball instead of, you know, Olay picking it like, like major league. Right. So I, I think as these individual stats like home runs and stuff became more important, a lot of those fundamentals of the game have kind of fallen away, and that, that definitely did bug him. He also never understood. Um, he used to get so mad when the catchers would get run into at home plate, and they have since made this, you know, the rule that you can't bowl the guy over. But he would say that he was so quick with the tag that he, he would say something like, I'd like to see you try and bowl me over. I'll get the ball and, and the, my glove will be in your face and you won't touch me. Like he, he doesn't understand why the catchers were getting hit. He doesn't understand why people got hit by pitches so much because you, you had to be agile and nimble and recognize what, what the pitch was that was coming at you and, and get out of the way. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, these are things that a lot of the new players certainly know today, but the game is, is different. They do things different. They put value on different things than they did in the past. And, and uh, you know, I, I think eventually it'll like kind of auto auto correct itself where 220 strikeouts is not going to be okay for forever. If you're not putting up the, the batting average, you know, but everything goes in cycles and, and what people value changes over the years. Is there a specific moment from your career in sports that sticks out to you? Maybe a time that you felt like you were experiencing something that was historic. It's funny for me, like a lot of the world series and the Stanley cups and all those things, they kind of blend together for me. There's a couple of the, I remember when Ray Bork won his first Stanley cup, when he left the Bruins and went to the Colorado avalanche. And uh, I think it was 2001 to see Ray Bork finally raise the Stanley cup after a 20 year, you know, amazing career in the NHL. That was pretty cool. I was in the the bird's nest in Beijing when Usain Bolt uh, broke a, a world record. I think it was in the, and I'm terrible, but the I think it was in the 100. Um, and that was pretty cool to see because that there were so many people in that. It was such a huge stadium. And just to see them erupt, that was pretty, pretty amazing. Um, you know, I mean, anytime you see somebody win a World Series and you you are there in person and you can feel the electricity that 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 joy creates, it's all really really cool. But I'm actually really bad at recalling specific moments. Are there any articles that stand out to you that you've written that you know one that you were just really passionate about, or one that when you were writing you felt like you could just go forever? The last story I did for ESPN magazine was the first real big story on the Tommy John surgery epidemic in baseball. It was at the beginning of 2012. And that one I still see passed around on the, on the internet today. It, uh, it, you know, talks about the, the biomechanics and, and, and the fundamental flaw in your delivery that leads to too much stress on your UCL and, and causes that problem with your with your arm. And a lot of youth coaches still pass it around and they use it as, you know, reading for their, their young 
pitchers, so they kind of are, are more aware of, of the biomechanics problems with pitching that can, can lead to injuries down the road. Talked a lot about pitch counts and inning limits and, and what you really need to be worried about with young pitchers. So that that one I'm, I'm proud of just because it, it, it was a first and because it, it made an impact on a lot of people. There was actually a freelance story that I did a number of years ago that I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, I am a uh, CrossFit coach. I've been doing CrossFit since 2008, and I used to freelance for a lot of CrossFit magazines. And I had a friend at my gym who had a problem with uh, one of the valves in his heart and ended up having to have open heart surgery as like a 30-year-old guy. And he was super concerned that he wasn't going to be able to go back to CrossFit. And he started Googling and he found a few other people, actually very high-level CrossFitters, two of them, uh, who had been in the CrossFit Games who had also had open-heart surgery. And they started a Facebook group called I Heart CrossFit. And they found they found a few other people, and there were eight members in this group. And they were just kind of supporting each other through open-heart surgery, their recoveries, their returns to CrossFit. Yes, you can do it. It's not the end of the world, et cetera, that kind of thing. And I wrote a story on it for this CrossFit magazine, and it got so much publicity that that group, I Heart CrossFit, now has, I think, almost 300 members, 300 people who have had open heart surgery and then got back to CrossFit. And the guy who administrates the group, he makes sure that the people are legit, that they are sick, that they, they need to be in the group. And I, you, you go in there and you, you read the people's posts, and they're, they're really supporting each other through some pretty unbelievable stuff. Like, it's pretty scary to have open heart surgery. And the fact that that grew from eight to 300 people that those people were able to find each other because of the story I did is something I'm always really proud of because they post almost every day and I get that daily reminder. What are your thoughts on baseball returning to the 2020 Olympics for the first time since 2008? I think it's pretty cool because baseball is definitely a, a world game. You know, a lot of the world plays baseball not as much in Europe as in South America and in North America, but it's been growing in, in Europe as well. I did a story um, a few years ago on a young French woman who is actually the first female to be eligible to be drafted by Major League Baseball. I mean, obviously that's a long shot, but she was playing in France. Um, I've done stuff with people in the Netherlands and, and Israel and Australia, and it, it is such a world game. And I think that it had become you know, that Major League Baseball's came, baseball players came so predominantly from, from North America and Central America uh, that it's it's cool to have it open for the whole world to, to see again. There's a lot of great baseball players in China and Japan, and, and it, is, it is really a world game, so that's nice to see. Yeah, and hopefully with that exposure in the world context of the Olympics, more people in Europe will start playing um, as they have in, you know, Asia and South America. Yes, and my Italian heritage, you know, Team Italy, maybe we win the World Baseball Classic one year. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay, you have been involved in sports, health and fitness, and Yogi Berra, your grandfather, was also a positive role model and served as a member of the military during World War II. His legacy lives on through the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center to this day. What responsibility do sports have to help to build communities and make the world a better place? Well, I mean, I think that sports at the youth level do a lot of things for kids. It teaches them, you know, confidence and how to be on a team and how to inter interact with others. And most of the people who go on to be real successful leaders in lives, a lot of, in their lives, a lot of them end up, they were playing youth sports as, as a kid. I think that 
on a, on a national level and a bigger scale, like one of the most amazing things I saw was uh, after 9-11, how the New York Yankees, um, there was a fight at Madison Square Garden, a Trinidad fight that got, got suspended um, after 9-11 that happened a, a few, like I think a week later they, they did the fight. But people were so behind those athletes at that time and what the Yankees did for the city of New York at that time to kind of reunify the city. Sports has this very amazing ability to heal wounds and bring people together. So I think it's a, it's important for a lot of things. It's important for the people who play it. It's important for society. It, it definitely plays a huge, huge role in, in our our culture. And you do see a lot of it um, with the, with the, what sports brings to the military as well with, with uh, athletes um, visiting with soldiers, with soldiers who are playing on bases. It's pretty incredible. I don't know if that's a good answer, but it, uh, it's, it's special. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Lindsay, to share stories and lessons from your grandfather's legacy and from your career in sports on the American Valor podcast. Thank you guys for having me. Hello, podcast listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Valor podcast, produced with support from an Angel's Touch publishing company, the publisher of Walk of Heroes, Profiles of Valor. This book was created in support of the Active Valor Foundation, and the limited edition book illustrates the 37 National Baseball Hall of Famers who served in the United States military during World War II, including Yogi Berra, who is present at D-Day, and we just heard from her granddaughter, Lindsay Berra, today. Simply visit our website at activevaloratwar.org and visit shop to order your limited edition book or follow the support the show link in the notes to this podcast. Our next episode will feature Mrs. Ann Feller, the widow of National Baseball Hall of Famer and Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller, the namesake of our educational foundation. For updates on the American Valor podcast and the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. For Tyler Buckholtz and Colin Kirk, my name is Nathaniel Cameron. Thank you for listening to the American Valor Podcast. We are especially excited to release our conversation with Ms. Barra during Black History Month, during which the Yogi Berra Museum is displaying Discover Greatness, an illustrated history of Negro Leagues Baseball. This is a traveling exhibit on loan from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, showcasing African-American baseball from the 1800s through the 1960s.